I'm not the pastor here. <laughs> if it's your first time with us, my name is Oscar Medina. I'm one of the elders around here, along with Tim, Scott, Enrique, Brian. And uh, Ben, pray for Ben and his family. I, I, by my calculations, he's about halfway through his sabbatical, right? About, about halfway there. So just... <laughs> so pray that God will continue to abide with them at this special time. Thank you for remaining standing as we look at Psalm 27, continuing in our series on prayers in the Psalms. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Lord God, we come before you today acknowledging there are times in lives that confuse and confound. And we seek in your word a way through. And you've promised, Lord, to be with us. And you've promised to accompany us. And Lord, through the psalmist, we receive hope and a way through. Speak to us, to our hearts. Open our ears and our eyes to see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. <clears throat> there are several themes in Scripture that are repeated and reinforced over and over again. God is with us is one of those. 
Uh, we see those in Scripture, the burning bush. We see the talking donkey. We see a pillar of fire that guided the people of Israel. We see prophets coming with the word of the Lord. Hebrews 1 talks about how in many ways, in past times, in diverse ways, God has spoken to his people. That's definitely one of the themes we see through Scripture. Another very common theme is God is grace. I have a little book that I, I got years and years ago called Scarlet Thread Through the Bible. The book is actually the manuscript of a spoken sermon uh, preached by Pastor Criswell in Texas years ago that he started preaching at 7.30 in the evening on, a, on a December 31st and went all the way till 12.30 at night. Five-hour sermon. <laughs> and it's all written down in a book. Uh, but but it's, it's a, a scarlet thread through Scripture, uh, how God is grace and seen through so many places. There's another theme, uh, the one another, is how we are to love one another. In John 13 alone, 16 times we're told to love one another. In Romans 12, we're told to be devoted to one another, to honor one another, to be in harmony with one another. We're told to build one another up. We're told to be like-minded. We're told to accept one another, admonish one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear each other's burdens. We're told to forgive one another, be patient with one another, confess to one another. For the Latinos out there, we're even told to kiss with a holy kiss when we greet one another. Only do that if you're Latino, right? <laughs> you might get in trouble otherwise. But there's one theme that it's amazing how often Scripture speaks to, and it's do not be afraid. When Abram leaves his father's house, God says, do not be afraid. When Moses is sent to Pharaoh, God says, do not be afraid. When Ezekiel goes to Israel with the word, a word that they won't like, God says, do not be afraid. When Hezekiah prepares for war, God says, do not be afraid. When the children of Israel were taking the promised land, God says, do not be afraid. When Joshua takes the mantle of leadership from Moses, God tells them, do not be afraid. When, when Angel was sent to Bethlehem upon the birth of Jesus, uh, the angel says to Zacharias and to Joseph and to Mary, do not be afraid. When the disciples are in the lake in the middle of a storm, Jesus appears and says, do not be afraid. When the woman came to the tomb to collect the body of Jesus, the angel says, do not be afraid. When Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, he says, do not be afraid. When God told Ananias, there's this guy called Saul, go to him, do not be afraid. Even Paul telling his disciple Timothy says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. So why? Why does God spend so much time talking about fear? <clears throat> well, I think God knows we have a propensity for fear and for anxiety in our lives. I remember as a child, I was, I was afraid of two things. I was afraid of that belt that hung in the closet that nobody wore. And I was afraid of the chancletas on my mom's feet. Those are the two things. Have you all ever seen that YouTube video of, of a woman, a Latino woman, who's walking her dog by a river? And a gator comes out of the river and starts going after her dog. And she takes off her chancleta and goes like that. And the gator runs back in the water. Have you ever seen that? 
Don't mess with a, a mama's chancletas, I tell you. There are all kinds of fears. When you're young, it's the boogeyman, it's the monster under the, the bed, the monster hiding in the closet. Unless you've seen Monsters, Inc., then you know that they're okay. When you're a teenager, it's about being accepted. It's about having a girlfriend, a boyfriend. It's about where you're going to go to school, what you're going to do. When you're older, it's about your first job. It's about who you're going to marry. When you're an adult, it's about financial issues, about your home, maybe looking for retirement. When you're a little bit more seasoned, you worry about your health, you're worried about what comes after, you're worried about death. We all have fears that, we, that beset us. We all have anxieties that surround us. The psalmist had a song for that. Sometimes I forget that these psalms are, are songs, that they're poetry that was written in a language so foreign to ours 3,000 years ago. And we read them, and we see the beauty in the language, but the poetry doesn't quite work for us. And I think we don't get the impact of what this meant for the people who are reading this. Are there songs that are meaningful to you, even today? I remember when I was in high school, a girl broke my heart, and I sat and I listened to Lou Rawls' You'll Never Find Another Love Like Mine for hours. <laughs> Are there songs that are meaningful to you? You know, um, some people think, and, and you probably caught it, the different movements in Psalm 27. Some people say that it's actually two different psalms because the first part is so full of confidence. And then he starts talking about, why have you turned away from me? And, and some people say, maybe these are actually two different. How can one person have such two extremely different feelings? And that's the beauty of Scripture. And that's the beauty of how God works in our lives because we are filled with these contradictions. And we do struggle with, yes, believing and trusting, but also, Lord, I'm concerned, I'm afraid, I'm anxious. So David answers this question, which is how I've entitled my message this morning, what do I do with my fears? And David's answer is, I will not fear, I will be confident, I will wait. I will not fear, I will be confident, and I will wait. So I will not fear because I know who God is. He says it right at the beginning in verse 1. He is my light. He is my salvation. He is my refuge. Now, it doesn't say that he gives me light. It doesn't say that he casts off light. It says he is light, and he is salvation, and he is refuge. Now, these might seem to be kind of an odd assortment of metaphors or things that God is being compared to, right? I mean, they seem to be disconnected from each other. But if you, if you look closely, they, they follow a clear direction. You see, the, the context is that a lot of times, sometimes we feel like we stumbled into a battle. The truth is, that's incorrect. We haven't stumbled upon a battle. We are living on the battlefield. We're actually living on the battlefield. 
the thing is that the battlefield is shrouded in darkness. So we hear the moans and the cries. And we hear the crashes and the booms. And we hear things whizzing by. And we smell the putrefaction of, of flesh and the wounds. But we can't see because we're living in darkness. We're living on this battlefield and we're not even aware of what's happening. But then God, who is our light, shines. And suddenly we see around us. And as we see all the bloody war and battle that's raging around, and as we see the people falling, and as we see the bombs exploding, we see in the distance the general coming towards us because he is our deliverer. He is our salvation. So he gathers us up, and he takes us to his refuge because he's our refuge. He's our protection. But we have some issues. You see, the, uh, the thing about darkness, it's quite interesting. The laws of physics uh, explain that darkness is interesting that it's defined only by the absence of something else. There's no real way to measure darkness. All you can do is measure the amount of light and take the inverse measurement. Darkness is only defined by the absence of light. Because where light is, darkness cannot be. When we're in the light, we become aware of God. We become aware of where we are. We become aware of what's happening. We become aware of our need for deliverance. Did you imagine that battlefield as I described it? Did you imagine suddenly your eyes being opened and becoming aware of what's happening around you and that there is a deliverer who sees you and is coming for you? There's nothing that you can do. There's no weapon that you can use. There's no protection other than running to he who will deliver you. And once you're there, what did the song say? No one could rip me out of my Savior's hands. There is no power. I forgot the word. There, there is nothing that can pull me out of God's hands. He is the Almighty. He is the Most High. He's been described in so many different ways. I won't use the fancy uh, Hebrew word, but he's, he's our banner. He's our shepherd. He's the healer. He's the one who is present. He's the righteousness, the sanctifier, the everlasting one, the provider, the Lord of hosts, the prince of peace. Do you know who your God is? <clears throat> you see, a sightless man can understand descriptions of light can maybe feel the warmth of the sun without ever seeing light. A hearing-impaired person can study sheet music and musical notations, can hear or feel vibrations without ever listening to the majesty of wonderful classical or beautiful modern music. A person unable to consume food orally through his mouth may hear expressions, descriptions of food, but has never tasted the sweetness of a wallamedum or a mango or a peach or honey. 
You may have heard of God, but do you know him? Have you experienced him? See, David says, since I know God, I will not fear. Did you get that? Let me put it to you another way. When I compare who you are against who I know God to be, I ain't scared of you. I don't mean to minimize our problems. I don't mean to make light of our struggles, of our anxieties. Even David in this psalm says, Lord, hear my voice when I cry. Be gracious to me and answer me. David knew the depths of anxiety and fear and concern with what we're facing in our life. But he said, I will not fear because I know who my God is. And then he said, I will be confident because I know what my God has done. I will be confident because I know what my God has done. In verse 3, he says, Even though an army encamps against me, my heart shall not fear. Even though war rises up against me in spite of this, I am confident. How can I be confident? I mean, he's got the two extremes. He's got the extreme of an external force pressing against him, an army. And you know, the difference is, we may think about armies, but... I've never had an army encamped against me. You know, maybe two or three people, you know, when I was a football player, but that's about it. Have you ever had an army? He's had armies encamped against him. He's faced that reality of external pressures against him. And then he talks about on the internal side, yeah, you know, even if my mother and father abandon me, I'm going to be all right. Modern day, there's a lot of books and writing about dealing with anxiety, you know, a lot of them are basically saying this, things that you're worried about may never happen, so don't think about them. Instead, envision something else. And it's, it may be helpful, but David's pattern is actually a little different. David is actually looking at the worst things that has happened in his life and he's still saying, even if those things happen again, I will be confident. See, it's a good thing to, uh, to have flashbacks sometimes. And David's having a flashback. In verse 2, he says, you know, back when evildoers approached me, when they were hungry to devour my flesh, not sure who he's talking about. It could be when he had to deal with lions and bears when he was a shepherd. It could be the Philistines. It could be Goliath. Not sure what he's thinking about. But he says, they stumbled and fell. They stumbled and fell. He's having a flashback. You know, it's good to remember. Israel used to put little memorials, piles of stones all over the place. And those were memorials of what God has done. They'd be walking around and saying, oh, look, that pile of stones. That's where Jacob wrestled God. And, and over there, that, that's where Jacob met with Esau, and, and they were reconciled. And, and over there, that's where God delivered Egypt, and, and they saw their enemies being drowned. It's good to have memorials. Now, I'd be careful about doing this at home. You know, it's kind of a safety hazard of having piles of stones all over the place. But there are, there are other ways to have memorials. I have, I have little doodads all over my office. 
throw things on my shelf. My wife says they're just gathering dust. Um, but they're things that are memorials to me. Like I have this one little wood, wood carving. It looks kind of odd. It's kind of a cylindrical shape. It looks maybe like it could be a top, but it's not really a top. And I have it, and it's special to me. The reason I have it is because during one of my trips to Cuba, I met one of my, one of my cousins, one of the only cousins I'd met that was a believer in Christ. We had a wonderful conversation. And he took me to his, uh, his shop where he had a lathe. And I marveled, and I said, wow, you got a lathe. Where'd you get a lathe? And he chuckled and said, well, I was in an accident with my motorcycle, couldn't find the pieces, it sat there for a long time, so finally I took it all apart, and I made this lathe from my motorcycle parts. <laughs> that was amazing. And so then he, he gave me this piece, and he said, I want you to have this. I said, wow, that's, that's really beautiful. Thank you. I said, but where'd you get the wood? He goes, yeah, that's always the problem. But that piece there, that piece there is, and then he kind of put his head down. When our church was burned down, some night, you know, we're called, and Someone had set our church on fire, and we tried our best to put everything out, but most of it burned down. But there were two pews that didn't fully burn. We were able to get those. And so I, I took apart the pews, and I made these, these pieces, and I want you to have one. So I keep that doodad as a memorial of someone who recycled their burned down pieces of pew as a testimonial that God is still alive in his life. I have another little toy, little child's toy, it's not much, but I was in Haiti once and I was visiting an orphanage where we were gonna bring a team of people to build some more buildings for them. They were really overcrowded. And as I was getting ready to leave, this little girl comes up to me and she gives me her toy. And she says that, I want you to have this so you don't forget about me, so you don't forget about us. So you come back and help us. So I have that little toy, one of my little memorials. I have another memorial with a picture of my daughter. We had a friend who was an artist, uh, a children's book illustrator. <clears throat> and she was writing, uh, she was illustrating a, a book of stories of Jesus. And, and she, she picked out our daughter, Rebecca, to be the model of one of the images where a child is looking into Jesus' eyes. So she borrowed Rebecca for the day and, um, and went with the person who was the model for Jesus. It wasn't me. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> after a couple of hours, she comes back and says, it's just not working. I can't get that look in her eyes that, that, that I want. Then she says, could you try something, Oscar? And I said, sure. I said, let's, let's do it with you. And so Rebecca looked in my eyes and held my face, and the, the artist just went crazy taking pictures, and then went back home and replaced my face with the face of the model of Jesus. And I keep that picture as a reminder that my daughter may see Jesus in me. There are memorials in our life. God's fingerprints are all over the place. As he intersects with our lives, what he has done, where he's brought me, 
Another way to see this is that there are patterns that when we see what God has done, that can be a predictor to what he will continue to do in our life. Yeah. Have you ever thought about patterns? Like, here's an example. There are patterns in numbers. I'm going to give you four numbers. See if you can decipher the pattern and give me the fourth one, okay? Two, four, six. Oh, no, it's 2,137, but you were close. <laughs> no, no, of course you were. I'm joking. But, but there are patterns that we can distinctly see in our life, and, and one of those patterns is God continually working in our life. And the fingerprints are there to see how he intends to care for us. There's this wonderful story that I read about how farmers in the Midwest often have to deal with sudden blizzards. Just the way the flats, the the land is flat and the weather patterns. And it becomes quite intense and it frequently becomes a whiteout. So through just history and, and teaching each other and, and some of the really bad things that have happened. There have been stories of farmers or their wife going out in the middle of a storm because they hear a crash in the barn. They usually build their barns some distance away from their house, so they don't have to deal with the smells and the sounds all the time. But it's, so it's far enough that it's easy to get lost in the whiteout of a blizzard. There have been stories of, of some people literally going out and getting lost and being found the next day, literally footsteps away from the door that they couldn't see, frozen to death. So one of the things they do is they tie a rope between buildings, just as they know that the storms are coming, so they can be tethered to something to guide them along the way. You may not be aware of this, but you're in a blizzard as well as I, and we need to be tethered. It's so easy to get turned around, so easy to get confused, it's so easy to be blinded by the blizzard that assails us. But we've forgotten how to be tethered. We, we were talking earlier this morning about being tethered by being part of a community group, about people who will walk alongside us and with us and help us and encourage us. And that's important, but the greatest tether we can ever have is our connection to God through prayer and through a relationship with him. And so often we're so conformed with what we have, not realizing how much more we could have. You know, I did a little biblical math. The disciples, assuming that the disciples spent maybe eight hours a day, six, seven days a week with Jesus for those three years that they were together, According to my math calculations, they spent about 8,760 hours with Jesus. And by the end, they still had gaps. They got a lot of things wrong. I mean, one of them took up a sword and cut off somebody's ear. I mean, a few of them were saying, said racial things about the woman at the well. They were so, totally confused about what Christ was about to do. One of them cursed at a woman because he didn't want to be uh, identified with the followers, uh, followers of Jesus, they had gaps. That's after 8,760 hours, about my best estimate. And we spend an hour a day in church, and we think we're good. An hour a week, I bet. Want to hear a Christian dad joke? 
My kids love these. No, they don't. But <laughs> a Christian dad joke, okay? All right. Do you know that Jesus is divine? What does that make us? If Jesus is divine, we are the branches. Oh, come on. It's not that bad. <laughs> Scripture talks so much about our need to abide in Christ. Abiding in Christ. In him, we can do much. Outside of him, we can do nothing. There's no in-between. In him, we can do much. Outside of him, we can do nothing. So I need to move on. There's one more response that David says. I will not fear because I know who God is. I will be confident because I know what God has done. And I will wait because of the goodness of the Lord. I will wait because of the goodness of the Lord. Now we talked about the realism of Scripture. I love how the stories of the faithful in Scripture they're not puffed up like they were perfect. They're not stories of men and women who had no, no faults and no problems. I mean, David knew problems. We already talked about how when he was a young boy, he had to fight lions and bears. And he had to face Goliath, just, you know, dropping off lunch, and suddenly he's in the midst of a battle, facing a nine-foot giant. And then his king tries to kill him, and he has to run away. The king happens to be the father of his best friend. Then he has that whole thing with Bathsheba where he kills somebody, and he has to face the prophet of God pointing in his finger saying, you are that man. He lost a child. He had his own son try to kill him and take over his kingdom. This was a man acquainted with problems. And yet he says, one thing I desire, one thing I desire. You know, there's, there's different times in the Old Testament where it talks in numbers. There are three things that God hates. There are seven sins that are abominable. There, there's numbers. This is, I think, the only one where there's just one thing. David is saying there's one thing I desire. There was a movie back in the early 90s called City Slickers. It's with Billy Crystal. You might have seen it. And so it's these, uh, these uh, city slickers who get away from the big city, they're bored with their life, and they go out to a ranch in Montana, and they become part of a cattle drive. And so um, the ranch hand who's leading them, this one scene, uh, Billy Crystal is complaining about his life. And the ranch hand says, you know, you guys are all the same. You spend your whole year twisted around doing all kinds of stuff, and then you come here in two weeks, you think you're going to get the knot out of your rope. And he goes... The secret of life is one thing. And Billy Crystal says, really? One thing? What, what is that one thing? He goes, the secret of life is one thing. The one thing is that you need to figure out what that one thing is. <laughs> it's a great scene. And you know, he's right. The thing is that there is only one thing. And David says it's to dwell in the temple. Now, it didn't really mean physically living in the temple. You have to remember, the temple was built during Solomon's reign. This is before, David is before Solomon. They had a tabernacle. They had a tent. And the people that lived there were the Levites taking care of the sacrifices and stuff. 
He, he wasn't actually wanting to live physically in the, in, in the temple, in the house of God. He's talking about something else. He, he's talking about, about meeting God at a level that's completely different. You know, there are people who love to go out camping and they go to creation and they say they meet God in creation. And I think that's wonderful. Uh, the, you know, the scripture says to, to dwell and to gaze and to inquire. I think it's great to gaze upon creation and, and to see the wonders that God has done. But, you know, it's one thing to see creation, and it's another thing to see the creator. Now, you might go to your favorite concert and enjoy the music of those artists. And when it's all done, you've enjoyed it, but you can't say you know those artists. You've experienced their music. You can go find a Ford Mustang and stick your head under the roof, but you can't come out under that roof and say that you know Henry Ford. It's one thing to know the Creator. It's one thing to gaze around you. It's another thing to gaze on the Creator Himself. Now, it's interesting that, that David says one thing, but then he uses three verbs. Did you see that? He says, one thing. Let me get that right. One thing I have asked of the Lord, I will seek it to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So, which of the three? To dwell, to gaze, to inquire? Well, see, really, to dwell is the thing. And to gaze and inquire is how you do that thing. To dwell is the one thing. And the way that you dwell is by gazing and inquiring. And if we look at the rest of the passage, we see like in verse 8, it's broken out. And, and that section that people think doesn't really belong to the psalm, in verse 8, he's talking about gazing. It says, show me your face. Your face will I seek. And in verse 11, he's talking about inquiring. He says, teach me your way. So the rest of the psalm is broken down and explaining what it means to dwell. And what it means to dwell is to gaze and to inquire. <clears throat> so, so what is this gazing? Well, there are good things in life, things that often we end up gazing at, things that we enjoy. But the problem is that um, if those things that we gaze at are not the one thing, then when we start gazing at them, we get to a point where we get fear of losing those things. That creates anxiety. The African bishop, Augustine, St. Augustine, you may have heard of him, he said this, fascinating, he said, anxiety is often the result of the collapse of a false god. Anxiety is often the result of the collapse of a false god. When we're gazing upon something that may have started as something good, but we let it become the one thing. And when that collapses, those are the things that create in us anxiety. And David is saying, there's one thing. And if I'm, if I'm just trusting in that one thing, everything else falls into place. So, 
so how do we, how do we gaze? Well, again, Augustine, he, ta- he, he had three words. He, 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 he described gazing upon God, retaining, contemplating, and delighting. And what that means is that, that you look for truths. You retain those truths, and you can find them in Scripture. You can find them in experiences, in worship experiences. You, you can find them in all these ways, and you grab hold of that truth, and you retain it. And then you contemplate in it, and you look at it, and you say, what is God telling me about me and my life and his care for me through that truth? And then you delight in it, and you look for ways that God is blessing you through that truth. That's the gazing. Now, the thing about David, if you think about it, the worship experience and the temple that he's talking about, the tabernacle, what he had to gaze on as part of their worship experience, I mean, was butchering bulls. I mean, that's what they did in the tabernacle. They sacrificed animals. Tore them apart and offered them as sacrifice. And yet, by, by gazing upon that, he was able to see, I follow a God who takes seriously sin, but a God who loves me so much that he's provided a way through for me. And he held on to that truth and he gazed upon God through the truth that he had available to him. Now, if David can do that, if David can see God's grace and mercy through the butchering of animals, how much more can we see in the face of Jesus? Now, the thing about gazing is that gazing is not enough. Gazing upon God, contemplating the beauty of God, the goodness of God, that's wonderful. But we need to inquire as well. Oh, what, what does inquire mean? Well, inquire is about seeking counsel. It's about seeking advice. It's really about finding God's will for our life. Now, here's the thing. If all we do is inquire, if that's all we're doing, that's all we care about, just inquiring, we want to know all the truth, we're asking all the questions, we're studying the scripture, we want to know God's will, and that's all we care about, that we, we just end up being Pharisees, legalists. And if all we're doing is seeking after gazing at God, the beauty of God, and looking for that experience of wonder, and that's all we do, then all we all we become is spectators. We need to gaze upon the goodness of God, the beauty of God, and we need to seek in His temple and inquire after His wisdom. You know, it's really similar to a healthy marriage. A healthy marriage is 95% serving one another. There's nothing that breaks intimacy as much as selfishness. But if you uh, jump in bed and gaze at your wife and then walk away selfishly, that's just not going to work. See, we need to tell God, I don't need them to like me. I'm not coming to you for another church. There's one thing I ask, and all I want is access to you, to gaze and to inquire. See, here's the thing I want you to remember. Let me get this right. Living in the presence of God is greater far than living in the absence of troubles. Did you get that? Living in the presence of God is greater by far than living in the absence of troubles. So I'm finishing up here. 
Okay, this one is really deep. Take notes. Verse 5 follows verse 4. Was that a little too deep for you? Verse 5 follows verse 4. See, in verse 4, he's talking about dwelling in the house. And because I dwell in the house of the Lord, verse 5, he will hide me in the day of trouble. Now, when he's talking about hiding in the day of trouble, he's not talking about like horror movie type hiding. He's not talking about he's going to stick us in the closet, turn off the light, and tell us to be quiet. That's not the kind of hiding that's being talked about. What this means is because he talks about he's going to put us high in a rock. The kind of sheltering that God is talking about is the folk who want a piece of me can see me, but they can't touch me. Jesus is hiding us in his shelter, not to hide us from troubles, but to give us the assurance that, yes, the people who may want our downfall can see us, but we are out of reach of the enemy because of the one thing. No weapon formed against you can prosper. And everything meant for evil God will work for good. I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart be bold. Yes. Wait for the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that in the midst of all our pain and all our confusion and all our doubts, you speak to our lives in ways, and you show us the patterns of care, and your fingerprints are all around us, working to teach. Give us the heart to seek you, to dwell in your temple, to gaze upon your beauty, and to seek your counsel. In Jesus' name, amen.